Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast version, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. You can also find information about my talk show appearances and any new book projects at MarlenePardo.com or go to Amazon and look at my author profile as Marlene Pardo Pelliser. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and also listen to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for Scary Storytelling, Nightshade Diary for Classic Horror and Adventure Stories, and of course, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests as we talk about the mysteries of the unexplained. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy theories, and just about anything that is plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. The Detroit Axe Murders and Other Notorious Crimes Near the corner of St. Albans Street in Mack, Detroit, is a tract of land where a house once stood. In 1929, a horrific murder was committed under its roof, where a family, including four children, were killed. Not surprisingly, there have been reports of a headless man seen wandering where this abode once stood. Could it be the fact that this murder was never solved that causes a tortured soul to be bound to the place it experienced its last horrific moments as a human being? In 1902, 15-year-old Benjamino Evangelista was only one of millions of Italian immigrants who came to America seeking a better life. He anglicized his name to Benny Evangelist, moved to Philadelphia, and set about making a life for himself with his older brother Antonio, who had immigrated from Naples with him. The brothers prospered, but during this time, Benny developed an interest in the occult and claimed to be receiving visions from God, many of which were quite dark and not Catholic at all. He also started his cult, which was probably the sale of love potions and hexes to those who were lovelorn or wanted vengeance. Whether his brother Antonio already had seen this side of his brother is unknown, but it was enough to sever the relationship and Antonio disowned him, at least temporarily, and Benny went off to York, Pennsylvania to work on the railroad there. Like magnet to steel, Benny developed a friendship with another Neapolitan named Aurelius Leon Angelino. Perhaps he was seeking a mentor or a father figure since Angelino was 20 years a senior and before long they both continued studying occult philosophy such as theosophy among others. Benny continued with the development of his cult and its philosophies but a horrific event occurred which derailed the fruition of his plans. Whether they fed each other's insanity or there was a triggering event 
which sent Angelino over the edge. In May 1919, he was jailed and transferred to the county asylum. His wife made efforts and secured his release, not realizing what a horrendous mistake this would turn out to be. The following day, while his wife prepared dinner in their Lancaster home, he took up a club and tried to kill her. She ran into the yard with two of their four children. However, he took the opportunity to lock himself in the room where his four-year-old twin sons were sleeping, and he crushed their skulls with the club. He then stripped nude, took their bodies to the yard, chopped up one and stuffed the body parts in a can, and he was stopped by police before he could dismember the second. He ended up in the hospital for the criminally insane. Ben Evangelista, whether truly disturbed by what his friend had done or because he thought it was expedient to sever all ties between himself and this ghastly crime, relocated to Detroit, Michigan. He moved in with his brother Tony, who lived in an Italian neighborhood at 642 Wilkins Street with his wife and four children. Benny worked as a carpenter. Sometime after 1920, Benny married, had his own children, and expanded his interests into real estate. Despite making quite a bit of money with his real estate interests, there is no denying that he was enthralled with the occult. He named the cult the Union Federation of America. He authored his own Bible for it titled The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. He was a self-described poet, mystic, prophet, and healer, and used religion, black magic, and herbal medicine to cure those with mental or physical ailments. He would charge sometimes as much as $10, which was the equivalent of two days' pay for most of the people that lived in his neighborhood. Things went so well for Benny that he moved his family to a house at 3587 St. Aubin Street in Detroit. It was spacious, painted green, and had a wide porch. In a basement, he constructed a dingy shrine that consisted of paper mache dolls and figures hanging by a wire in the ceiling which he claimed depicted celestial planets and his Bible was the sun. He also had an altar where he concocted his potions and hexes, including the sacrifice of animals. He held sermons there as well as readings, but not all those that came to him for cures or love potions were pleased with the results. They thought he had duped them and taken their money. On July 3rd, 1929, a real estate agent named Vincent Elias came to the Evangelista home. He was there to wrap up a deal with Benny for the purchase of a farm near Marine City, Michigan. He thought it was very strange that the household appeared to be so quiet. The front door was unlocked, and he thought that Benny was downstairs in his basement, and he let himself in. He found him there all right, with his arms across his chest, sitting in a chair behind his desk, minus his head, which had been placed next to his feet. He bolted from the house and summoned neighbors and the police, when they entered, they found a house of horror. Benny, it appeared, had been the first victim, and bloody footprints 
were tracked upstairs where the bodies of Santina Evangelista and her four children were found in their bedclothes. The coroner estimated the crime was committed around midnight. Santina's head had been almost severed and her 18-month-old son Mario lay in her arms with his head crushed. Angeline 7, Margaret 5, Jean 3 had their heads crushed in as well, but one of them had a partially amputated arm at the shoulder. From the Detroit Free Press, it's quoted, Insofar as is known, nothing of any value such as money, jewelry, or papers were disturbed, although Evangelist had a reputation of being a considerably well-to-do real estate operator among the Italian colony on the east side. Among the weird idols that Evangelist had on the altar, he had well-known Catholic icons including a cross. He also had a false beard and a wig which the police believed he used when giving his readings. There were also three pictures of a child living in a coffin, which later on the police found out to be of Benny's son who had died several years before. There was no explanation as to what message the photographs were intended to convey. Another newspaper reported, Several pieces of women's undergarments, each tagged with a name of its owner, police pointed out, reveal that the so-called mystic indulged in practices of voodooism or devil worship, such garments. Voodooism has it can lead to the finding of a missing person when they are properly handled by one versed in the mystic arts of that belief. The police interviewed his physician, which lived also on St. Albans Street. He told them that Benny was insane and a religious fanatic, that he would demonstrate outside his home on the street, waving his arms around and shouting incantations while he stared heavenward. He said that the older children were Mrs. Evangelist by a former marriage, as they had not been married that long. Next, the police interviewed his attorney, who told him that he had been involved in several lawsuits about real estate transactions, but none that would have caused such a level of enmity to cause the massacre of the entire family. The preface of the Evangelist Bible read, My story is from my own views and signs that I see from 12 to 3 a.m. I began on February 2, 1906 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it was completed on February 2, 1926 in the city of Detroit, County of Wayne, State of Michigan. The police had their hands full as not only neighbors, but other gawkers came to see the house where the crime took place, contaminating the grounds and destroying any clues. They were lucky to recover a bloody fingerprint from the front doorknob. When the detectives started to canvass the neighborhood for more information, they ran into another problem, which was that most of the families living there were recent Sicilian and Italian immigrants who did not want to talk about what they knew, if anything at all. Despite the proof found at the evangelist's home that Benny had received hundreds of people for reading, not even a handful admitted to even knowing him. One of the leads the police found were several notes Benny had kept 
in which he was being threatened by the Black Hand, the last one only being written six months before, that a reputation of preying on wealthy Italian immigrants, but that theory led nowhere, as by 1929 the Black Hand had evolved into organized crime where extorting local businessmen was something that was common before the time of Prohibition. Benny would probably not have taken the threat seriously, correctly assuming it was an amateur trying to scare him. The following day, police arrested Umberto Teccio and Angelo Dipoli. Teccio had visited Evangelist's home the day before the murder to make the final payment on a house he had bought from Benny. Dipoli had accompanied him to the house. When the police visited the boarding house where they lived, they found a keen-edged banana knife and work boots that had just been washed. Both men denied any involvement with the murder and claimed they had gone off to drink after visiting the house. The police were slow to accept their words as truth since Teccio had escaped prosecution after knifing his brother-in-law, Bart Mafro, in April. He claimed that it was self-defense and since Mafro had later died at the hospital, there was no one to contradict his version of the story. But with no further proof to tie them to the murder, they were both freed. Teccio was rearrested for the murder in March of 1932, based on new evidence and then freed when they verified that his fingerprint did not match the one found at the murder scene. The police ultimately pinned the murder posthumously on him in August of 1935. Teccio had died November of 1934 from a hemorrhage. His wife, who had divorced him after he had killed her brother, told police that Benny Evangelist had two machetes hanging over his altar, one which was not found and believed to be the murder weapon. A newspaper boy said that he had seen Teccio at 5 a.m. on the doorstep of the Evangelist home when he was delivering papers, and others who lived in the same boarding home as him were not sure if he had left later that night. None of these witnesses had dared to come forward while he was alive. However, this resolution to the case was short-lived when in August 1935, the fingerprint taken at the scene was sent to another police department who confirmed that it did not belong to Teccio. The last suspect, Aurelius Leon Angelino, in hindsight was probably the most accurate based on the nature of the crime. About a year after the murder, a comparison was made between the fingerprint at the evangelist crime scene and those taken from the Angelino household when his sons were killed, and they appeared to match. In 1923, Angelino had escaped from the Pennsylvania Asylum for the Criminally Insane and was never found again. He had escaped twice before and had been recovered. Had he made his way to Detroit ready to reestablish their business relationship, only to be rebuffed by evangelists who had no interest in sharing the spotlight or the money he was making? Did he make his way into the home when he knew the residents of the working-class neighborhood would be asleep in their homes and slip out to leave the city quickly, knowing there would be many 
that would be suspected. After his escape in 1923, nothing was ever known of the whereabouts of Angelino. In the 1940s, the Evangelista home was demolished, and now most of the neighborhood, built in the 1920s, has been leveled as well. Only a grassy field remains on the site of this horrific murder, which is said to be haunted by the figure of a headless man. Perhaps this was the bargain he made with the dark forces that he worshipped in his basement shrine. The Trunk at the Railroad Depot Throngs of morbid New Yorkers flocked to the Rail Express Warehouse on East 44th Street on that July day in 1920 as word spread of the monstrous discovery of a mutilated young woman crammed into a trunk. The unclad body, quote, had been laid open as if with a surgeon's knife from throat to pelvis and all internal organs removed, reported the New York Times. The trunk was addressed to James Douglas in care of the American Express Company. Paperwork showed it had been shipped by A.A. Tatern of 105 Harper, Detroit, on June 10th and moved into storage on June 17th. Detectives discovered the sender's name was supposed to be Tatum. Clerks had misread the scribbled handwriting as Tatern. This explained why they had been unable to locate the trunk for a delivery man who told police he had been hired by a certain E. Leroy to claim it for the fictitious Douglas. Police theorized the man who paid the delivery man for his unsuccessful pickup had been the killer. Alan Tatum, the purported sender, surrendered to police in Birmingham, Alabama. The linotype operator had returned there after spending several months in Detroit. He had nothing to hide. In fact, he was so scared of Leroy, a man he had never met, that he opted to remain jailed for protection's sake. The woman in the trunk was soon identified as Catherine Lou Jackson, a young petite divorcee who was the common-law wife of Eugene Leroy. The couple had met the previous year while staying at the Interban Hotel. Both were newcomers to the city. By the spring of 1920, they lived in a third-floor room at the apartment building on Harper. Leroy was known to have a short fuse. According to Tatum, Jackson had told him that Leroy once chased her out into the street with a knife, threatening to kill her. Tatum and Jackson had known each other in Birmingham. At Jackson's request, Tatum came to Detroit to comfort her. Whether they were also lovers is unknown. Leroy, who at the time was enjoying his own affair with an actress, obviously thought so. Police surmised Leroy killed Jackson out of jealousy, possibly using chloroform to first knock her out. No bloody clothes or blankets were ever found, suggesting the killer had burned them in the basement incinerator. Leroy used Tatum's name as a sick joke and a false lead when shipping her remains out of town. He had apparently intended to pick up the trunk and destroy its contents, a plan that backfired because of a simple misspelling on the sender's address label. 
Leroy was faintly recalled by acquaintances as having been employed in the auto industry, either as an engineer or mechanic, though that may have been a ruse. He was variously described as ferret-faced, a man of medium build, dark complexion, and shiny black hair, wearing sporty clothes and frequently in the company of women. He was said to use perfume lavishly. New York police quickly implicated him in two recent hotel murders, including that of a 17-year-old woman. This person reportedly used several aliases, including P.P. Pulver, O.J. Woods, and O.J. Fernandez. Whatever the fugitive's true identity, he had a much larger and considerably less documenting world to move around in than today. In 1920, there were no national crime databases, DNA registries, computers, or even social security numbers to assist the authorities. It was still possible for a wanted man to simply vanish. So it was with Leroy. Over the next several years, men resembling him were spotted in Mexico, arrested in Sheboygan, and detained in Uruguay. Each time, however, what seemed a promising break in the case came to nothing. The last flurry of sightings occurred in Chicago. In February 1925, a carnival worker named Frank J. Leroy was arrested, principally because of his name and a unique scar that matched the one the suspect was thought to have on his left leg. However, police had determined the man had been in a Cleveland jail at the time of the murder. That November, a waiter matching Leroy's description was picked up in the same city. He, too, was soon set free. An already cold trail slipped into deep freeze. No trace of Leroy was ever found. Neither was a second trunk the killer was known to ship from Detroit the same day as the first. This one presumably contained the victim's missing organs. Who Killed Grace Loomis? The evening of February 22, 1927, was wet and cold. Despite the rain, Dr. Frank O. Loomis later told police he decided to take a walk. When he returned to his home on the 1300 block of Marlowe, about 45 minutes later he found his wife, Grace, dead on the floor of the sunroom. Her face had been battered, and there were deep cuts on her arms and fingers. A window had been smashed. The $100 Loomis said he'd given Grace to buy clothes for the two young children who were sound asleep at the time of the murder was missing. Friends described Loomis as an upstanding citizen, a doting family man whose practice included many charity cases. There was no apparent motive for him to kill his wife, a nurse he had married in 1914, but detectives didn't buy his story. They found a scorched wooden stake and a pair of pearl buttons in the basement, furnace indicating to them that he had burned the murder weapon and his bloodied shirt before notifying authorities. Moreover, two people walking on Marlowe reported hearing a shrill scream around 9.05 p.m. It was about that time that a telephone operator handled a call from an unknown woman who shrieked before a man's voice came on the line. Never mind, he said, then hung up. Loomis contended that at that particular time he had been blocks away 
on his walk. Loomis was arrested and put on trial. Every day, hundreds of people tried to squeeze into the small courtroom where Prosecutor Robert Toms and Louis Colombo, one of the city's top defense attorneys, heatedly clashed. Colombo contended that a peeping Tom had watched Loomis hand his wife the $100, then waited until the doctor left before breaking into the house and fatally beating Grace, taking the money and the murder weapon with him as he fled. It was a simple, straightforward, and plausible scenario. But then there was Gertrude Newell. Detectives and reporters knew quite a bit about Newell, even if the jurors weren't allowed to. Described as an auburn-haired charmer, the slender, flighty divorcee had been spotted being squired to speakeasies by Loomis several times before Grace's murder. After the murder, police apparently planted listening devices in Newell's Wabash Avenue apartment, though whatever they may have learned was inadmissible. The prosecutor brought her name in rather timidly, some thought, and Loomis admitted that he had had a cocktail with her once and dinner with her and her parents another time, wrote crime reporter Charles Givens. However, she was declared a hostile witness and therefore could only be called to the stand on rebuttal. Loomis was known to have a temper, but during cross-examination, the 36-year-old suspect was cool, methodical, and unbending. Meanwhile, Colombo parried the prosecution's expert witnesses with those of his own. After a three-week trial, the jury took just 35 minutes to arrive at a verdict. The doctors found not guilty. For the next year, Loomis was hounded by the press and shadowed by the police, forcing him to constantly change his office and residence. As he renewed his oft-contentious relationship with Newell, his practice fell into disarray and his debts mounted. He was just so wrapped up in her, said a friend, he couldn't think of anything else. On the evening of May 18, 1928, the two quarreled. I know a hell of a lot more about you than you know about me, neighbors heard Grotrude yell. The next morning, Loomis was found dead inside a dentist's office adjoining his own, head down on a desk. He'd inhaled illuminating gas, a half-empty whiskey bottle, and an open Bible were nearby. Loomis left three suicide notes. One was to a friend which read in part, G drives me crazy. My God, how I love her. Perhaps we will meet again when both of us may be more reasonable. Another was to a local paper. It began, I am not guilty of murder. My conscience is clear. Detectives strained to parse Loomis's word. Even in death, he continued to insist that he did not commit murder, which technically was true if he had killed Grace in a fit of rage. In the eyes of the law, such an unpremeditated act is considered manslaughter. The last note was addressed to the police. It said, A newspaper article will be published in 24 to 48 hours explaining this action on my part. Please be patient until then. If Loomis had indeed written and mailed a clarification of events, possibly even a confession, it never arrived. Meanwhile, Newell suffered a nervous breakdown and attempted suicide. She soon left town. Where she went, 
and what happened to her afterward is unknown. The Goodhart Murders The first thing that tipped off neighbors that there might be something amiss at the Robeson's Cottage in the summer of 1968 was the stench permeating the woods in the Blisswood Resort. Dick and Shirley Robeson and their four children had spent most of that year in the Detroit area, where Dick Robeson worked in advertising and was publisher of an art magazine. Their home there was on a quiet street in Lathrop Village. By early June, they'd arrived at Somerset, their log and stone cottage that was a short trek north of Harbor Springs, down a twisting road a half mile west of Lakeshore Drive. Its front door sat about a hundred feet away from Lake Michigan. When a neighbor complained about a bad smell coming from the area of the Robeson's cottage, a caretaker stopped by to check on things on July 22nd and found the doors locked. Concerned, he pried open the doors molding to an entry. It was then he saw the first body. The caretaker backed away and called police. The scene was so gruesome that the cabin had to be demolished after the investigation because the blood and stench could not be washed away. The initial autopsies had to be done at the Emmett County Fairgrounds because the smell and the advanced state of decomposition made it impractical to bring the bodies into the morgue. Investigators later determined someone had shot through a cottage window with a rifle, killing Dick Robeson and one of the boys. The others were chased down and shot one by one. The killer closed the curtains, locked the door, turned up the heat, then tried to cover the bullet holes in the window with a piece of cardboard. Because nearly a month had passed between the murders and the July discovery, police started by talking to people about what they'd seen and heard near the family's cottage at the end of June. They interviewed a local man and teen who'd handled some tree trimmings for the family on June 25th and likely were the last locals to see the family alive. The officers talked to other neighbors who remembered hearing raised voices and rapid gunshots coming from the property around that time, but assumed it was someone shooting seagulls on the beach. The investigation quickly centered on someone much closer to Dick Robinson's inner circle. Joseph Scalaro III of Birmingham had worked for Robeson's advertising and publishing companies since 1965. The U.S. Army veteran was listed as an assistant to the publisher. As the investigation to the multiple homicides progressed and the laboratory analysis of the evidence seized at the scene of the murders became available, glaring discrepancies in the statements of Joseph Scalaro, business associate of the victim, became obvious. The more they dug, the more inconsistencies they found between the evidence and what Scalaro told them. Investigators began to question his alibi at the time of the slayings. The really impressive detective and crime lab work surrounded the two guns police say were connected to the case, a 25 caliber Beretta automatic pistol and an uncommon 22 caliber Armalite AR-7 rifle. Records obtained by the police showed Scalera had purchased two of each, though he later claimed he'd given one of the pistols to Robeson and given both the rifles away. 
but witness statements led police in 1969 to a private shooting range owned by Scalero's father-in-law. Detectives found AR-7 shell casings there that exactly matched those found at the crime scene, according to a state police lab report. This turned out to be the smoking gun for investigators who had long been pushing for a break in the case. As the years passed and Emmett County still declined to bring charges, the investigation shifted to Oakland County. This was where Robinson's business was based and the alleged embezzlement took place, but no arrest warrant for Scalaro was ever issued. Shortly before authorities planned to request charges, Scalaro killed himself in March of 1973. There were rumors that Scalaro got wind of the charges, but the investigators say that they don't like to think that anyone on the case would have leaked the information. Scalero continued to deny the allegations until his last moments, leaving a sentence on a suicide note stating he did not kill the Robesons. He scrawled at the bottom of the typewritten note, P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robesons. I'm a cheat, but not a murderer. Fast forward five decades. The land where the Robeson cottage once stood has remained vacant. After the murders, a family purchased the property and kept it untouched, almost as though it was a memorial. Then in 2018, the property went on the market, the one-acre waterfront listed at $425,000. Would you buy it? Would you build a house there? Wondering about any strange noises you heard outside, or maybe even inside your new home.